Ladies and gentlemen, it's Josh and Tom Devour the World. Nom, 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 nom. I am Josh Battenhorst, the Josh part. Playing the Josh role today is myself, Josh Battenhorst. And playing the role of Tom Chalmers is Tom Chalmers. <laughs> well, Tom, uh, we have decided that we're going to try to mix things up a little bit and add a little uh, spice to the beginning of the show because what we noticed was we weren't always getting into our devouring part of devouring the world, were we? There's a whole lot of Josh and Tom, <laughs> yes, which is good. But yes, the, the devouring is what makes this this. So we've decided to assign each other either eating or drinking as the the topic for the week. And this week you had eaten. So no, you had drinking. I think you, yeah. yes, you had drinking. I had eaten. So Tom yes. to uh, follow through on the format of our show, Josh and Tom. I think you've, you're clear on that part. But we are two guys used to living in Asheville, going out, taking in lots of things, food, drink, music, all those things. And as we found ourselves during lockdown, um, we thought we would check in and see what is filling our brains as well as our bellies and uh, seeing where it's uh, bringing us. So that's what we got. And uh, yeah, so uh, uh, what have I been devouring this past a week or otherwise? I've come to sing the praises of peach juice. Mmm. Peach juice. Um, <laughs> which is particular. I've spoken. I uh, am someone who can't enjoy the wonderfulness of a peach as i am allergic to a lot of orchard fruits oh so peaches uh, and pears and plums and, and apples and otherwise um but oh boy peach juice is so fantastic and uh, there are some fruit flavorings that i'm like no that the fruit is better than the fruit flavoring uh -huh. uh, like uh, apple it gets a little weird and strawberry is just unforgivable I'm like what happened there you know <laughs> But uh, peach as a flavoring, and particularly peach juice or peach iced tea, brings me to a category which I can't believe we haven't talked about so far. And I mean no uh, offense with my blasphemy, but there are some things that make me go, God damn, that's good. God damn. <laughs> and peach is a flavor that just hits me that way. So I have that response. God damn, that's good. So. Um, it, let me get some clarity. This is actual juice from the peaches, like they're squeezed peaches. Oh, I wish. Or, no, no, this okay. is a store bought or you know infused beverages with with peach and or peach flavoring, which I'm sure, as I made the mistake of looking something up, don't ever look up something that brings you pleasure, and you find out glitamethorine. <laughs> what? Yeah. So don't don't find the source. Just enjoy the effect. But yeah, my wife and a. And a you know, kind of random grocery store purchase brought home peach juice and uh, i admit uh, straight on uh it's it's a lot but uh added to uh cocktails or, or or other things it's just so good it's just delicious and hits all the favorite parts of my mouth nice uh i i am a peach uh fan of peach flavoring as well the peach knee high I don't know if you ever have uh, have had a peach knee high. It's a it's a it's a beverage that you don't see very often, but sometimes on a road trip or something, and you stop to get gas. If the peach knee high is available, I will grab grab myself a peach knee high. It is as you should. Uh, peach Snapple has always had a special place for me, so if, <laughs> and the uh, the stores are very sneaky that they'll put a little bin of them kind of right by the uh, you know the, the checkout area. And by that point, you're a little patched, and you could use a little peach snapple. Um, so <laughs> it's just that easy for you. But that that is what I'm finding. And because it was purchased by uh, someone else who then left for a few days, I was doing what I could not to just completely finish it. I wanted uh -huh. there to be some left by the time she got back rather than go out and just replace it. So I was just putting a little bit into a lot of different things, and it, it, it travels well. A, nice. A nice. little bit will do you. So, uh, <laughs> and did, were you successful or did you drink it all? Uh, there, there was only like an insulting amount left. <laughs> Backwash? Uh, that it, it did get uh, replaced eventually. Um, but uh, yeah, so that is, uh, that is what is making uh, my mouth happy this week. Excellent. And uh, so I had eating, eaten, as we say in the South. And uh, my offering this week, we talk a lot on the show about Amber's cooking. Amber's a wonderful cook. Uh, but she cooks vegan food, and she attempts um, 
meat-type flavored things by creating seitan, which is basically wheat gluten that is cooked in a spe very specific sort of manner so that it kind of congeals and turns into a meat-like product, even though there is no meat in it. Um, and this week's offering was lamb. Um, yeah, so so no 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 lambs were sacrificed in the creation of the 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 Saitan lamb, uh, Satan's lamb, and so we it smelled like lamb. Uh, the the goal was to create a gyro, which we did. Uh, but I was talking about it with uh, John Scott, one of my friends, and he was asking. He said, "Well, here's my problem with fake meat products. It's that it's called." the thing that it's supposed to replace as opposed to being having its own name like uh, sabaladaba or whatever you know and then when someone were to because and, and so it creates this expectation in your mind that oh i'm getting lamb or i'm getting corned beef or i'm getting uh, what else has she done ham any of those flavors and it's just never going to be that thing it's like trying to create something turn something into something that it just can't be you know only a lamb is a lamb, um, and um, and it was fine. It was good. We we I did enjoy the the gyro, but uh, but it definitely has that sort of like uh, it's not lamb. It's not lamb. It may smell like lamb. It may have like kind of a texture of the like gyro meat that gets sliced off of the, the, the giant skewer in the kebab shop, but it does not. It still doesn't have quite that taste. Uh, yeah, the the. Meat substitute working so hard to to look and feel and taste like meat it it, it is odd. <laughs> it, it is on the same category of basically sending someone a note saying like still not thinking about you you know like <laughs> but you are. Um, and it to me there is a, a legal battle going on right now, which uh, you may know from from Texas, where. You know, uh, the beef industry, cattle industry, is really objecting to things like Impossible Burger using the term burger or meat. They, they feel like it's misleading. Sure. And, and I, in that case, I think that they are trying to, you know, discourage this thing that is really rising in the market. But in some cases, I do think they have a point, which is like, no, you can't call that meat. Don't, don't <laughs> right. mention meat anywhere near this, you know? like I meat think the dairy industry has had the same issue with almond milk and uh, yes. soy milk and oat milk and like saying, wait, it's not, it's not milk. It's something else, you know? Um, I, yeah, I, I guess that is it for me. I, I enjoy anything that Amber cooks for me because like, she's trying to keep me healthy, trying to yes. do it. And so I really do appreciate, but yeah, I think there could be more creativity brought to uh, the thing and maybe even don't maybe even don't call it meat. Call it uh, I don't know vegetable product. I don't know what <laughs> vegetable extension. Um, so that's my question. If uh, Amber were not per, uh, um, creating this food, knowing that you're going to be involved, would she work so hard to make it resemble the thing that uh, you know it is standing in in place of? Because it sort of reminds me, like I love when we do like cat and dog treats in like the shape of something. I'm like. I, I, do you think the dog or cat really like, oh, shaped like a goldfish? Um, nom, nom, nom. Oh, look, I did it. Um, so I wonder if it's sort of the same thing of like restorative. It, I think it that's makes it. us happy to sort of uh, put a cookie cutter shape around it so we get to. It I'm wasn't sure really like shaped like lamb so much. I mean, it's really more of like just kind of like a like a lunch meat, uh, like before you get it, you shave it off, you know. So it was kind of like just kind of a glob. Uh, that's that's not a very attractive way of describing it, but it kind of was is kind of like a just a ball of like gluten. Um, so yeah, it didn't really have that that feeling. But uh, I, I think the idea is that those flavors people like those flavors. You know, they like the gyro flavor and it the way that it interplays with tzatziki sauce and all that mm -hmm. other stuff. Um, so that's eating and drinking for this week. Our guest this week is Dr. Yele Aluko, who's going to be joining us shortly. We're going to have a great conversation. Uh, he is the chief medical officer for Ernst & Young, and we've got a number of questions to fill in with him. And so uh, hang around after the break, and we'll talk with Dr. Yele Aluko.
All right, we're back now with Dr. Yele Aluko, who is the Chief Medical Officer for Ernst & Young. Uh, Yele, welcome to Josh and Tom Devour the World. Yum, 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 yum. <laughs> invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you both, and certainly a pleasure to see you again, Josh. I haven't seen you for about, I don't know, many years since we were in business school together at Wake Forest. <laughs> That's so right. Josh, tell, That's right. Us, tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, Yele and I, I guess the first time that we met was probably at uh, the, the, the raceway where we were changing, tried to, we, we were all put on different teams as part of our Wake Forest program. And our first interaction as a whole group was to go and try to change a tire on a race, <laughs> on a race car, <laughs> as I recall. <laughs> that was kind of like- That is a, true. That is yeah. true. That was an experience. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so Yele, could you tell us a little, could you tell us your story a little bit? How did you get to be, because you are a medical doctor, you are, you've got many, uh, a business person as well. You've got, had many roles. You were in a different role with, I believe, with Novant Health when last I saw you and now you're with Ernst & Young. Could you tell us a little bit about your story and, uh, and tell us when will you be, uh, become the Surgeon General of the United States? Because you just keep climbing the ladder. <laughs> Totally, I totally expect to see you someday in that role. <laughs> interesting, uh, interesting projection there. Maybe my time's running out for that particular role. <laughs> but um, yeah, I am. I'm a cardiologist by training, and yes, when we met, I was actually the medical director of the Heart and Vascular Institute at Novant Health, and at the time, Novant Health. Uh, headquartered in North Carolina, had a portfolio of 14 hospitals and multiple physician practices uh, across four states, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Northern Virginia. And um, I was in charge of developing processes that standardized um, behavior, standardized care, developing physician alignment to corporate strategy, um, defining the value of our product by way of clinical outcomes and cost of the product we took to market. Um, so that's what I did. I had a portfolio of cardiologists, adult cardiologists, uh, pediatric cardiologists, cardiac surgeons, and, and vascular surgeons within the, our leadership team's governance. And I'm happy to say that uh, we were able to be successful in achieving the vision and mission of the organization in driving high quality cardiovascular care within our geographic footprint. Now, having gone to business school, um, while I was still practicing, I gradually developed different interests uh, from a macroeconomic perspective of the industry seeking to have a larger uh, footprint and a louder megaphone to be able to message the imperative for industry transformation in a manner that value became more understandable. When I say value, I'm talking about value to the consumer. Mm. And of course the consumer in healthcare, the ultimate consumer is the patient. So as you well know, within the value chain of the industry, we have the patient, we have the physicians and nurses, we have the health systems, the hospitals and diagnostic facilities. We have the insurance companies, we have medical device companies, we have pharmaceuticals and we have the regulators, the government. So that entire value chain creates a complexity that impacts the ability that influences the efficiency of the patient journey. We're all patients, right. and I'm sure we all have stories to tell as to how difficult it is to, to access or understand information that's coming to us as consumers. So within the industry, we have a large opportunity to optimize the patient journey, um, increase efficiency, performance optimization, and increase value. And at EY, I have the opportunity to work with a lot of very brilliant colleagues that are aligned around this imperative to help health systems 
and all other stakeholders work together to drive more value to the consumer. Yeah, because when I think about being a consumer, we talk about consuming a lot of things on this show. I mean, Tom and I just got through talking about uh, my wife who is vegan, who just created a, a seitan loaf that was uh, meant to impersonate a lamb. And, and so we had, we had that dumb talked about, you know, and a peach, a peach drink. And as a consumer of the things that we, uh, we normally think about consuming, you can go onto Amazon, you get a, you look at, at the variety of different options and you, then you pick one, but where, but in healthcare, you're really, you, you can't just go onto Amazon and pick your doctor, right? You can't just go in and when, and when you need healthcare, it is, I, I had a, a knee injury last May and really just now I'm finishing up the, the PT on, on that and was, and found that I, it consumes, you, you don't, you, once you get tracked into one thing and they diagnose you that there's, there, there's not a lot of options, you know, you, you just, you're, you're bound by geography, by what's available to you, you know, by your insurance and all of that. And so, when you say getting value, driving value to the consumer, how, how would, how do you mean, what do you, what exactly do you mean? What exactly does that mean to a person? You know? Um, yeah. Well, healthcare is paid for the most part by insurance companies. Right. And you'll recall when we were classmates in business school, we had insight about the uh, extraordinary percentage of GDP that mm -hmm. is spent on healthcare. It's almost 20%. So when we talk about value on the one, it's an equation on the one side is the cost of care delivery, the cost. And on the other side is the results you get from care delivery. Right. Uh, the quality. Now there's a presumption that quality exists within United States healthcare, which by and large, it does, <laughs> but the cost to the insurance companies to get that quality varies drastically across the landscape. So being able to, first of all, guarantee that the quality is given in measurable manners is one thing, and then matching that quality of care given to the cost of care delivery is another, but the value equation essentially is quality um, calibrated to cost. Now, from a personal perspective, most people who have health insurance mm -hmm. don't think too much about the cost because um, they may have to pay a copay, mm -hmm. but when it comes to high ticket items, they're paid for by insurance companies. Sure. But fundamentally, for an industry to continue to be successful, it needs to be positioned to drive that value equation. Mm. And absent of doing that, the cost of care delivery will continue to rise exponentially to a point that uh, something's going to give and the government may just step in and begin to do some drastic things. Right. So close to that happening. Is that value equation the thing that is keeping outcomes from being the same across the board because we can when we look at large sections of the of our society those healthcare outcomes are and, and access to healthcare is not equal for for everyone and so is it because the companies don't see value for themselves in delivering care to these uh, to the populations of people who aren't getting the access to it that they should, or is, and is that a role that government has to play or are companies starting to see that maybe there is some, some value, some role that they had to play to help uh, people get better access to healthcare. Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's a complicated question too. Yeah. Uh, let us presume that everybody had access to healthcare. That doesn't exist, but let us presume that this was a homogenous society one race, all educated, all had access to healthcare. Mm -hmm. The outcomes would be different, even though there is no vulnerable population in what I've described. The outcomes would be different and the costs would be different across different hospitals, 
for the following reason. And the reason is that the accountability of providers, physicians and hospitals to maintaining, um, maintaining accountability of delivery of high quality at the best cost is weak in the industry. Fundamentally, it's weak. Okay. Some do a good job, some do a bad job, and you have a lot in between. Now, that is completely separate from if you now have the real society that is not homogenous, mm -hmm. is a multiracial, multicultural, different levels of access and education, where inherent with that ecosystem, you have vulnerable populations that are denied, for whatever reason, access to education, to good housing, food insecurity, transportation, and, be and they become more vulnerable to disease. Mm -hmm. And when they get sick, they have less access to healthcare um, because they may not have health coverage, they can't pay for medications, so they have more advanced disease at the time of diagnosis, oh, they right. tend to die earlier than otherwise. And a clear example is what's just happened with COVID-19. Okay. Where you've had what we call disparities in health outcomes, which was seen in black and brown people more so than in Caucasian people for a variety of reasons. Can you expand on that? What... Uh... Is this where some of your research in, with, with Ernst & Young is, is focused right now? Um, and, and what are you finding uh, as, you, as you look at those uh, outcomes? Well, um, a, lot, a fair amount of the work that I do at EY now does shed light on health equity. Mm -hmm. Health equity is an aspirational goal whereby everybody in... American society is able to achieve their health potential. In other words, everybody born into American society, if you're a male, have the same life expectancy irrespective of your race or socioeconomic designation. So it's Got an it. aspirational goal. Mm -hmm. Absent of having a birth defect or a congenital disease, we aspire for a society where a person born on the same day as another person will live to be 85 years of age, barring, you know, mm -hmm. cancer or anything like that. Um, but that's not the reality. The reality is that disparities exist. Mm -hmm. And I do a fair amount of work uh, providing insights to the industry around the reality of disparities, helping clients understand the ecosystem within which um, these disparities exist. And by disparities, I'm saying, for example, there's an increase in, in death in Black females that are pregnant mm. compared to same-age white females that are pregnant. So there's more maternal death in pregnancy, three times more blacks versus whites. There's an increase in infant mortality, deaths in Latinx babies under the year of one compared to Caucasian kids within the first year. Those are disparities. So we need to understand why that occurs and try to move the needle into solutioning for the problem so that health disparities are eliminated and by so doing you achieve health equity. So understanding the drivers of disparities becomes critically important and providing insight to clients within the industry but also outside the industry, because this is not just a problem within the health system. Uh, Dr. Aluko, I wanted to ask your opinion on the idea of kind of patient responsibility, or, you know, we're all potential patients. Um, 
and I'll refer, uh, I am uh, friends with uh, uh, Mary Edith Burrell, very talented writer and performer, and she did a one-person show sort of chronicling her experience with healthcare when she just sort of had an unfortunate accident at a, at a dog park, like late on a Friday afternoon uh, away from her home. So she ended up having like an ambulance to a, a hospital she didn't really know. Uh, and, and so just a series of things went wrong. Uh, as she, you know, and she spent, you know, a long time sort of getting herself out of this billing and things. So uh, while the show was very funny, the takeaway was it would behoove us as much as we have an escape plan. If, if there's a fire in our house, we know what to do. You should go. And if you can, these are all things if you can find out what are your local hospitals. Just because there's one a mile down the road, is that the best one for you? Um, or is maybe the one five miles away a little bit better? Um, and have, you know, numbers on, you know, on your personage, should something go wrong, this is who I want you to contact, you know, so be ready, you know, go talk to people at, you know, local healthcare centers and, and, and find out things about them. So she just really encouraged people to like, know what's around you so that when something unfortunately may happen, you're not making decisions in a moment of pain and panic and, you know, perhaps shock. And instead, you've made a lot of these decisions already so that you are positioned to um, have things go as well as they possibly could. So wh what are your opinions on that? The idea of just, you know, patient responsibility, not that it's our fault if we get, you know, uh, uh, improper care, but why risk it? Why not give yourself the best chance of the, of the best possible outcome by doing some research, having information on your person, that kind of thing? Uh, Tom, great comments there. <clears throat> and implicit in what you are asking, saying, is the notion of health literacy. In other words, an individual being aware of the implications of personal choices, personal decisions, as well as the importance of proactive relationships within the industry that can be put in motion if unforeseen events occur. And what do I mean by that? Uh, every person should have a primary care physician, whether you're healthy or sick. Mm. It's best to have a relationship with a primary care physician when you're healthy and have an annual physical examination every year. Physicians are first and foremost, patient advocates. So if you have an unforeseen accident that requires that you are taken to a hospital, you should be able to speak to your primary care physician, irrespective of geography, who can begin to be your advocate and can begin to point you in the right directions and start to explain to you the very complicated language that's going to be coming at you a mile a minute and the multiple people that you may be exposed to speaking to you a mile a minute you know, within, it's when I was practicing cardiology, we would have patients that might have a heart attack and come to the hospital on a Saturday. We do all the right things. Things move very quickly. And on a Monday, they might be discharged home and they wake up on Tuesday and they say, what just happened to me? Mm -hmm. Everything was done right, but the patient really had, was completely confused, scared, uh, literally clueless as to what just happened, a life-changing event had happened. Um, to mitigate those issues that you've described with your, your friend, um, the issue of health literacy, understanding your body, being proactive, embracing preventive methods, responsible healthy choices, but having a contact in the industry through a primary care doctor that will help you navigate the complexity of the industry. Hope that helps. Yeah, yes, well, thank you. you mentioned something in there about regardless of region and being able to contact your doctors. I have a question about that because, uh, and it's kind of two parts. One is, it seems like there is a, it, 
hospitals have a really hard time sharing information, patient information across different programs and different, you know, it seems like the hospital doesn't necessarily have the same access to the information that my primary care physician and they have to release the information. And even then maybe it's not as up to date as it needs to be. And then, so if I update it at the hospital, then maybe it doesn't get back to my primary care physician. So, so, you know, like, because for example, with the knee, I went to the emergency room because it had swollen up and was really big. And by the time I got back to my primary care physician for a checkup in September, they had no idea that I had been to the hospital. And it's like, well, why isn't that information shared more easily? And then the second one, you know, in COVID, a lot, I think things loosened up a little bit in terms of telehealth, but, um, but my partner, Amber, was on the phone and doing a telehealth thing. And the first question was, and are you in North Carolina right now? as if like had she not been in North Carolina maybe they couldn't have seen her and so I'm going I'm like well why are we building it why are there so many walls around uh patient information and and is that I mean because it just seems like you should be able to in this day and age have a wristband or something with all of your information downloaded onto it and then they can just swipe it you know it just seems like we it could be much smarter than uh than the way that it is right now well, yes, that's very true. Everything you said is true. For example, we all have um, ATM cards that work in New York and they work in San Francisco and right. indeed they work in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so if an industry is able to prioritize the need to know how much is being withdrawn from your account at every point of service across the globe, if it can be done in financial services, then that type of self-identification and tracking can be done. Right, yeah. The like technology it. exists. Yes. Um, the issue is compounded with um, a number of things, one of which is patient privacy sure. um, and portability of information. But the other issue and the larger issue is a lack of connectivity between different uh, segments of the health system. You may be seeing a doctor, um, a person may be in a rural area seeing a physician that does not have an electronic medical record. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have digitized information, it is harder to connect. I mean, I come, I come from a generation where before that predated electronic medical records, we used to have paper charts in the hospitals and in the offices. And oftentimes, sometimes we had uh, illegible information, incomplete information. That the doctor's handwriting is terrible. I mean, let's well, let's, well, let's most of the times it is. <laughs> but but with the passing of Obamacare in 2010, I think it was, there was an expectation for health systems to embed electronic medical records for data visibility, for data tracking, and for standardization. That has happened to a large degree across the country. Mm. But the first generation of electronic medical records companies were fragmented. So if you got electronic medical record X and the hospital down the street had Y, you couldn't tell one or the other what was going on. If you turned up at Y a month after going to X, you'd have to fax information. Gotcha. That those barriers have begun to be broken and there's better integration if you have electronic connectivity. Right. But if you are dealing with paper charts, um, then it, we revert back to the need to start faxing and phone calling, which is wow. very inefficient. For sure, for sure. I, I have a question about the last year uh, or two during COVID, you talked about the regulatory, you know, the big regulatory agencies. And it seems like, for whatever reason, uh, most of them political, it seemed, but the FDA and the CDC were were really given a they were kind of hamstrung by by uh, giving it seems like changes in in administration and it seemed like some informa information would come out and then they would change the information and so it seems like they really took a a hit in terms of credibility and. America and on the world stage. And I was just wondering how, if you guys, if you have had that, that same feeling or if that's the feeling in the industry 
or is that just a or is that a consumer feeling? Because I know a lot of folks don't trust, for example, the the vaccine. That's a big that's a big hurdle for some folks because they're like, well, you know, we we couldn't trust the information that was coming out from the CDC. So why would we trust the the, the vaccine rapid recall? And I'm just wondering if you if you've had that same re response from within the industry as well. Uh, well, it was clear for everybody to see that there was a misalignment in leadership. Um, there was a misalignment in political leadership as well as leadership in public health and in the health industry about the reality of COVID-19, the severity of COVID-19, and how to mitigate population risk around COVID-19. And with that misalignment, um, society was confused and became very disenchanted with leadership as a whole because what people saw was one problem coming from different areas of leadership. Mm -hmm. You've got political leadership and public health leadership, regulatory leadership. What it shows is that leadership matters in issues of healthcare. In fact, in issues that any leadership that regulates an industry, leadership matters. And there was this misalignment, which in my mind and in the mind of most rational thinking people feel if there was more alignment in leadership, there would have been less trauma evoked with COVID-19. Now we talk about, you mentioned the vaccine. Um, there, wa there was the perception of commercialization around the vaccine and the rapidity uh, by which the vaccine was brought to market was unprecedented. Not, not to say that it was done in an unethical manner because it was not done. It was done in a highly ethical manner, mm -hmm. but th throwing the confusion the different messagings, the retraction, the conflicting, the contradictions, and oh, lo oh, lo and behold, we've got a vaccine that's gonna be a cure and fix all. You can understand why a segment of society, um, I would say segments, different demographics of society were skeptical about the whole process. And this perpetuates and accentuated vaccine hesitancy as well as the anti-vaxxer sentiment. Mm. So it's explainable, it's unfortunate, and credibility, credibility has to be rebuilt and trust needs to be rebuilt as well. Gotcha. <clears throat> Dr. Luco, love having this conversation with you about healthcare consumerism, but I'd like to talk to Yale if we can now. And <laughs> you know, our show is about uh, you know the concept of devouring. Just curious what you find yourself taking in on a regular basis, whether it is to fuel yourself to do such a demanding job or maybe things that you do to sometimes just take you away from all the demands uh, on such a, you know, uh, high pressure uh, position in, in your industry. Um, for example, I, I wish people could see you have a lovely bow tie on. Uh, I don't know if, if bow ties are something that uh, you find yourself uh, focusing on, but we just love to hear personally, what, what are some things that you find yourself uh, returning to for uh, uh, pleasure or diversion, whether they be literally food and drink or entertainment or distraction, anything like that. Okay, great. So um, let's talk about food. Um, I am a firm believer that people should do things, all things in moderation. Um, <laughs> I'm a firm believer that everybody should understand what, what uh, um, biological footprints they turn up with. And you get that insight by going to see a doctor. You need to understand what your health status is. Do you have high blood pressure? Do you have diabetes? Do you have a family history that puts you at risk for cancer? So you understand what your biological uh, footprint is. And knowing that, you have an informed and objective opportunity to either move the needle away from risk mm. 
And how do you do that? You do that by understanding what your risk profile is, what your numbers are. And that helps inform you on your choices. I said earlier that I believe that all things should be done in moderation. I have a family history of high blood pressure and high cholesterol. So I know that I have that risk. In fact, I take medications for both high blood pressure and cholesterol. I take them religiously to ensure that my pressure and my cholesterol is normalized. Now, that doesn't mean I don't eat red meat, because I do. But I eat red meat in moderation. I eat mostly chicken and fish um, to mitigate the potential risk. But every six to eight weeks, I start getting a little bit antsy, and I go to a steakhouse. <laughs> and, I have a, and I have a steak. So I get now my we're fix. getting to it. <laughs> yeah. So I have my, my steak fix, my red meat fix. Uh, for for the next six to eight weeks. Um, so I have developed some discipline around that. Great. Is there a um, particular cut or kind of steak that... Uh... I like a bone-in ribeye. There you go. Nice. Yep. <laughs> uh, where do you fall on the prepared... Do you like it uh, more on the uh, rare or medium or to the well-done? I know. I like it medium well. Thank you. Uh, yes. Some people think that is just blasphemy. You know, like the don't even eat it if you're gonna burn it kind of thing. Like that. <laughs> right. I'm glad you agree with me on that preparation. I, I was I was at a meeting in Texas, in uh, Dallas, Texas, some years ago, an organizational meeting in Texas, and they brought out steak for us, and you know it was bleeding steak. And I tell you, <laughs> many people had to t t send it back. And again, this is Texas, where steak is eaten how steak should be eaten. Yeah. <laughs> the, the chef came out and asked whether there was a problem because about 20 people asked for their food to be sent back. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in Texas. So, yes, I'm, I am familiar with the idea that the, that it should still be kind of partially mooing by the time it hits your plate. That's the that wow. is kind of the take. Yeah, like, I've known you for a while now, but I don't think I've ever heard the story of how did you how did you come about becoming a doctor? And what when did you make that decision and when did you enter? Uh, the medical field. What, what was what was that choice like, and how, and how did you make that? How did you the get there? Interesting question. Well, I was 15 years old. I was in boarding school in Nigeria, where I grew up, and um, I was good in physics, chemistry, and biology, which were prerequisites to get into medical school at the time. Um, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. My elder sister, uh, at that time, had just entered medical school. And she encouraged me to think about it, but I hadn't really leaned one way or the other until a specific incident when I was 15 occurred. And this is what happened. My mother uh, asked me to come with her to visit a family member in the hospital in, in Lagos, Nigeria. And she parked her car. We walked out into the hospital, walking through the emergency department and I, we heard a screeching car come around the corner. Um, doors flew open and a man runs out shouting, please help me, my wife is dying. He runs in there looking for a stretcher. There are no stretchers. He runs back. I can remember him very vividly, his eyes bulging. The taxi driver and himself are trying to carry this large woman out of the back seat, arms flailing. They carry her, half drag her into the emergency department and they finally get a stretcher and she's gasping and she dies. Oh my. And here I am, 15 years old. It was the first time I got that close to that kind of trauma and devastation. And very naively, I decided there and then that I would become a doctor so that I would not have a family member that would have that unfortunate occurrence happened to them. Mm. That's, a, that's the honest truth. Wow. Um, and then I began looking into it and I began to feel that I, I could be well prepared and positioned to do it. And the rest is history. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, like, thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate all of your time and for you devouring the world with us. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and just uh, thank you for joining us and thank you for all the work that you're doing. And, um, uh, and uh, we hope to see you in person when it's safe to do so. Um, we, we would welcome to have you here in Asheville. I'll let you know when we're performing and maybe you can come up. Please do that. I will certainly come up to Asheville. Nice place to come to. 
Yeah. Thanks for having me. And we're back. Dr. Gale Aluko of Ernst & Young, Chief Medical Officer. Lots of information there, Tom. Fantastic. And, uh, and I'm happy to say we got him to confess he, he enjoys the steakhouse ever so often. <laughs> That's right. Yes. And uh, it, I would just, I love his Yale's voice. He's got the, one of the yeah. best voices. Like, I mean, I could, I could listen to him talk all day, honestly, like uh, an incredible voice. His brother, um, Teo is a performer as well, actually. And he uh, does a Paul Robeson show, a one man Paul Robeson show. So I, I've, been in contact with him and, and hope that at some point maybe Diana Wortham or one of the local theaters will bring him to come do that show because I, I would go see it and I, I yes. love Paul Robeson. So. Um, but now it is time, as it is every week, for Tom to give us a tasty bid, tidbit, a, norse, a morsel, a take on, uh, on the universe that is unique to Tom. So Tom, take us away with Tom's take of the week. Thanks, Josh. <clears throat> My take is convenient in that we had someone from the uh, healthcare industry and uh, my encouragement to all is um, believe someone when they say something is wrong. Now, I, I think that is particularly true for women and uh, as I think the doctor was referring to particularly black women in healthcare, a lot of times they will have complaints and people are like, uh-huh, yeah, I'm sure. And then they will go ahead and, and actually die or otherwise because they're just not believed. and. I yeah. had a little bit of that. Um, my wife uh, had a pretty severe reaction to the uh, vaccination. First time, just some bad planning on our part. She went by herself and she sort of comes back a couple hours later claiming that she just really went into a full shutdown um, because, you know, in response to the vaccination. Uh, and I and a lot of other people were like, oh, that sounds terrible. Well, I'm sure you didn't, you probably didn't eat enough. You know, there was some some contributing factor of something that she didn't do right on that day. Right. And we'll make sure that you do that next time so that won't happen. Sure enough, we go the second time. She has breakfast. She's hydrated, all these kind of things. We go, blah, blah, uh, vaccination. Sure enough, 10, 15 minutes later, she just goes into a shutdown. Luckily, I mean, her vitals and everything are still stable, but she just really is they're in her chair not able to really move her limbs or her talk very well um and she's doing exactly what she said happened but no one was there to witness it the first time oh. and she was sort of frustrated that uh, people uh, on site uh, didn't take more regard for why that woman just been sitting there motionless in the chair for an hour or two but just that um so i don't know i wasn't condescending or anybody but everyone's like well i'm sure there must have been something that caused that to happen you just can't have this bizarre shutdown and then we emts were involved this time and they're like wow yeah i've never seen anything like this she's fine but she is definitely not you know not herself right now right so it just brings me back to when someone says something that like i think believe them believe yep. them don't try to explain it away don't try to tell them well you, you know what probably happened there was like no you weren't right. particularly if you weren't there um so if someone says something is wrong, believe them, take them on their word. And if it gets explained away later, okay, but start from the place of, all right, if that did happen, uh, let's make sure that it doesn't ever again. Right. So believe them when they tell them something's wrong, because there probably is. And is, but is Tab, how is she feeling today? Just by, again, there's, you know, by the next day, it was just the, your standard uh, achy and, and a little, you know, chills kind of thing. Um but the, that first hour or so afterwards was very frightening. Um, very but hooray that we were prepared this time. Well, I'm glad that she's back uh, and yes. uh, above board. And yeah, that is just a, such a strange reaction, uh, everything that you described. And I'm glad that you were there the second time. And yeah, so wild, wild times. <laughs> uh, and next time we're bringing uh, Yale with us. <laughs> well, uh, so... As we do every week, I've got a song, Tom, and uh, this one has to do with belief as well. Um, I was given the theme, click the link, and so uh, I've got a, a little song about that. One of the things that I've been devouring is the, along with many people in America, the HBO series Q Into the Storm. Have you, have you uh, taken the time to check out that documentary, Tom? I'm aware of it. Okay, so this is 
a lot of the people that you see in the documentary are uh, Q-tubers, which are people who have their own YouTube show about mm -hmm. the Q phenomenon. And so uh, I just kind of took that idea and uh, that's where this song came from, so. Well, thank you all for tuning in and welcome to our show. We've got a lot to share with you since last you tuned in. So if you'd like to help us out, just hit up our Venmo. You can click the link in the comments. Perhaps you saw last week's report from the FBI. Another round of UFOs reported in the sky. But you don't have to take my word. You can read it in the Times. Just click the link in the comments. Who holds the truth? Heaven knows. But you know that we're keeping watch. Lizard aliens, little green men, Atlantis hollow earth and Sasquatch. Illuminati baby eating pedophiles in queue, dropping hints to tell us what to fear and what to do. Be sure to rate us five stars and leave us a review. Just click the link in the comments. <laughs> Whose word is true, it's absurd. Water didn't know it's all left up Zuckerberg. 5G conspiracy. Plain to be C vaccine, plain C COVID vaccine will be the death of me. So say your prayers and wave the flag and load up all your guns. The great cabal is led by Saturn alien Jewish nuns. Be sure to buy our supplements. They'll keep you hard and young. Just click the link in the comments. Just click the link in the comments. Yeah. <laughs> well so. done, Josh. Well done. <laughs> Um, so, uh, we have coming up next, Liz Talent of the Orange Peel is going to be joining us, um, next week on Tuesday. We're very, I'm very excited to talk to her and, uh, and talk about all of the, some really great shows that they've already, that they've got booked and hoping that the Orange Peel is, is on its way back. Music is on its way back. Going, you, you mentioned you have, uh, what did you call it? Foam mom. Yeah. Fear, out, fear of missing out on music yes <laughs> so, uh, so uh it is creeping but, back into my bloodstream we, we will get uh, the lowdown from liz about all that we hopefully won't miss out on and uh, we'll uh, listen we'll see you next week thanks thanks for listening bye now one take tommy <laughs>